the great thing is we don't really have limits because the limit is all in the brain. It's how you think. So you quit when you're fatigued, but that's just your brain telling you, oh, your muscles are starting to be tired, you have less muscle glycogen, so people back off. But the reality is you have such a big reserve. From Transylvania Mountain Festival, I am Anka Berlo, and this is a summer edition of the podcast recorded in Chamonix. Our guest for this episode is Chloe Lantier, an elite multisport athlete with over 25 years of experience competing on an international platform. She loves cross-country mountain biking and trail running, backcountry skiing, skate skiing, training hard and well, pushing herself and exploring the unknown mentally and physically. With her racing background, mountaineering skills, knowledge of the human body and decades of training, she loves to share and help athletes maximize their physical and mental potential. She is a consultant, author, speaker and education provider in the field of sports rehabilitation and performance training, holding a Bachelor in the Science and Physiology of Exercise, a Master of Science Diploma in Biomechanics and Human Performance and a Level 3 Coach Certification by the National Canadian Coaching Association. In her downtime, she loves writing and reading and has a weakness for skiing up mountains and skiing fresh powder. Chloe is also the founder of the Chamonix Mountain Endurance Academy and the Chamonix Mountain Running Festival. Her first book, Trail, Le Clé pour performer sans se blesser, Trail, The Keys to Perform Without Injury, was published this February in France by Glenat Editions. Welcome, Chloe, to the podcast. Uh, hi. <laughs> well, you have accomplished a lot so far. I was wondering, how can you keep in balance this active lifestyle that it's challenging both physically and mentally? You competed, you train, you coach, you teach at university, you do research and write books, you do consulting and even organize sport events. How do these all fit in your schedule? Well, it's just my life. I just make it fit. So the reality is that I plan my days around that. So for me, it's more like a routine. It sounds like a lot. Yeah, I work a lot. Like Friday evening is not Friday evening like most people. I work through weekends. You know, it's on and off. So I can have big weeks, smaller weeks, but I, I love everything I do. So the most important thing is I start my days really early. And often I start with a workout. I go train and I go to bed very early. What so. time? Well, I try to be in bed 9.30 or quarter to 10, and then I'll read. And mm -hmm. then I'll go to bed whenever I'm too tired. But it's important I relax. Sometimes mm -hmm. I teach in the evening. Sometimes I work in the evening. But um, my days are full. Mm -hmm. So I need good rest. Do you do a 5 a.m. wake up? Is that around yeah, the time you wake up? It's pretty much, it's pretty much around mm -hmm. 5 a.m. Mm -hmm. Some mornings earlier some mornings a little bit later when I feel like tired or I have a lot of pressure work-wise and I need to be fresh sometimes I'll sleep in a bit and go run in the evening or in the or in the afternoon sometimes mm -hmm. I like to review notes before I'll do a presentation or before I teach so it varies but I have a product I have good energy in a sense that um yeah I don't You know, I go, when you go to bed late and when you go for dinner, when you go out and party, you cannot have the rhythm that I have right now. So once in a while, it's fine, but I need a good regimen. But I, like I said earlier, I love what I do, so it's not a problem for me. Mm -hmm. Your activity is global right now. I know from previous conversations that for about 10 years, you did travel a lot. How did that fit with staying focused and keeping a routine? 
I've been full time in Europe. I think it's just like over seven years now. But before, I was like a full decade, all over between you know I'm Canadian between USA, Canada. There was a purpose why I was living this way. Mm-hmm. I was traveling because of work. I was traveling because of racing. So now I'm full time in Europe, and I've had to kind of uh, restart my business to a certain extent. I kept a lot of clients in North America, but I travel less. I do more via um, web conferencing. So in a way, it's kind of easier I find to manage my time. I was wasting so much energy just traveling. So I travel less, but I work more now. That's a big difference. Sounds more efficient. Totally. <laughs> And you know, I look back, I was talking about this uh, with someone a few days ago, and it's like, I don't know how I did it. Because every three months or so, I was flying somewhere. And I had three different, um, I had three different homes. So either if I were more in the U.S. or in British Columbia or in Chamonix, you know, uh, I would spend like six to eight weeks or more and then fly to another place. And so I was never home. When I interview guests, I always like to go back to that point where a certain interest for their field sparked. I know you won the first prize, your first prize in a competition when you were six year old. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of funny, eh? Well, the reality is I, I was active at a young age. Like I knew that. I liked to, you know, I was a kid, but like any kid, you know, I like playing with my bikes and running and playing outside, going to the park. But it's really, um, It's really when school started that I realized that I really like sports, but I was not, I was not supported. I didn't, I didn't grow up in a supporting environment. So especially in high school, I would run. Um, we finished school earlier, so I would go run before my mom would come mm-hmm. back from work. The reason why I love sport, I felt like I wanted to push myself. So it was very mental. I felt very comfortable. I felt myself versus at school, I was a little bit timid. I don't want to say I was insecure, but maybe I was not. Uh, it's more towards like high school that I was more open. I had a large group of friends, but before then, yeah, I was more timid. Basically, physical activity just made me discover how much we can do mentally. So then I got the cerebral and the physical together at a very young age, and it's still that way. Like I can still feel how that was when I was young, and it's the same now. Yes. It's just that I'm exploring it more now. That's great you have <clears throat> that strong memory. Yeah, I do. <laughs> For that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you seem to like variety. Uh, until teenage years, you competed in track 800 meters, cross-country, swimming, water polo, lifeguard league, triathlons, handball, rowing, ballet. Has your environment facilitated this obvious need to explore? When I was really young, my mom put me in ballet, and that was probably one of the best things for strength. Uh, because when, when I was born, I had a disease with my legs, so I was very weak. I had cast until the age of three. So ballet was to build strength, but I really, I still really loved it. But when I started school, like you said earlier, you know, we ran, we did snowshoe. Um, high school, the reason why I did handball and rowing, there were team sport that we could do. And I'm not a big team sport, but I like those sports. And then summertime, I was a lifeguard. So that's why I was a swimmer and I was playing water polo. It's because basically I was, it was my job. Mm-hmm. But it was really running through my teenage years. And then later on, you know, when you leave high school, if, especially like in Canada, it's almost impossible if you don't have a good sponsor to continue at a national level mm-hmm. to compete. So I just switched to 5K, 10K, and that's why I did triathlon because I always like riding bikes. So it was kind of, it was kind of a continuity. 
And then when I moved out west and I was in my early 20s, that's when I really started like trail running and mountain biking and mountaineering. So there's an evolution with all that. Yeah. And then later on, you just uh, kept three activities, running, biking. Yeah, it's, you know, it's funny how you put it this way. The other day, somebody presented me, they said, this is Chloe, she's a runner. I'm there, no, I'm not a runner, I'm an athlete. I do so many things, you know. Multi-sport athlete. <laughs> But I think it's more, running has always been part of my life. Mm-hmm. And I really like riding bikes too. Now I don't ride because I raced at the World Cup level for a decade and I really got burned out. Mm-hmm. And living in Chamonix, it's just, you know, it's just not the same. <laughs> But I do lots of mountaineering, so I'm very, I love ski mountaineering. Uh, I don't climb in the summer just because it's impossible with my workload and my training to, you know, as you know, you have to climb three or four times a week minimum just to maintain it. So that's something I let go. But in the winter, I spend a lot more time ski mm-hmm. mountaineering. You've competed in extreme events and you did Marathon de Sable. You did uh, the extreme uh, unsupported winter races. Which are the best memories of your competing years? You said something about the mental space you're in those races. My biggest memory is when it was very challenging, but I had to dig deep inside myself mm-hmm. and to just like be driven and have a lot of resilience and push. And that's what I love the most about racing. And that's why I did a lot of... I raced, I did some expedition too, but that's why too I'm drawn to events that are fairly remote mm-hmm. and off the grid, unsupported, and in beautiful environment like in Morocco, in Alaska, in Kenya, you know, just like not commercialized, not westernized area. So then you get to use your brain so much more. It's so much more than just running or riding your bike, you know. It's like you... You have to take care of yourself. You have to, you know, it's day in, day out. Uh, it's You have to deal with the elements in Africa and in Morocco. The heat is tremendous. In Kenya was the elevation. Doing 200K at elevation is very hard. Mm-hmm. And then Alaska, it was like a winter uh, bike race slash expedition. I mean, it's minus 50 and it's windy and you're on your own. And the thing is, I feel really comfortable in... People would call it like, um, they call it expedition. Me, it's more like when your body and your brain goes in survival mode. I feel comfortable there. I always say I was born probably in the, in the wrong era, you know. <laughs> but it's tough. I'm not saying, but I like digging deep. That's what I really like. Such an event is the Edita Road Trail Invitational, an unsupported winter race in Alaska that you mentioned, over 560 kilometers on a mountain bike. How long did you prepare that race? Which were the logistics? What did the experience teach you? Well, the reality with Alaska is uh, people are probably familiar with the Iditarod. It's uh, it's an 1,800-kilometer um, trail dog race that starts in Anchorage and goes all the way to um, the Arctic Circle. And that's been happening for 180 years. And this is basically a trail. It's not a trail like that's marked. We say mm-hmm. a trail, but it's more, you know, it goes through... Uh, through the Alaska range, it goes through tundra, it goes through mm-hmm. river, and that's why we cannot ride it in the summer because, of, you know, there's too much water. So we ride it in the winter. We were quite a few that were racing mountain bikes in the summer that uh, really wanted to explore that, uh, that trail. So then there's one guy who started a 100-mile race in Anchorage. So we mm-hmm. could get used to riding basically on the snow. Like now you have fat bikes, but mm-hmm. we started all that basically, our little group. 
So uh, we started doing 100 miles, and then he put a few other races. And then in the U.S., there was more races. We're a small group. But then they put together the 560K, which is third of the distance of the Iditarod. And we started a week before the dogs. So Mm -hmm. at least, you know, we would be on the same trail as the musher. And for me, that was like, I did it quite a few times. And it was, um, I always had a good experience, but it's, again, it's really rough. It's it's a mountaineering, Mm -hmm. basically, expedition. Um, You're dealing with snow, avalanche, open water. Uh, you're dealing with wildlife, you're dealing with moose, you're de- dealing with wolves, you're dealing with very, very little daylight because it's winter in Alaska, and you're dealing with uh, unpredictable uh, conditions. Sometimes you have to wait because there's a gorge, there's risk of avalanche, and then there's one way in and one way out of every tunnel. Mm-hmm. So a lot of logistic, you can never quit. Um, what, what was very challenging is I didn't decide when I was going to sleep. I slept midday for a few hours. If sometimes I would not sleep in a day because that was the warmest, but the nights I would have froze to death just stopping because you sweat, eh? It's not mm-hmm. like, you know, I went there to race. I didn't wear there to push my bike. So you ride your bike, but you stop, you get cold instantly because mm-hmm. of the sweat. So, and I had an attempt, you know, I just had a bivy. I had a really, really warm bag. It was really pushing through the nights that were the most challenging. But it kept me going. It kept me alive. It kept me, uh, kept my spirit high. But obviously I had really big lows. But you know when it's low, you have to push, push, push and focus. And then you come back to, to a high that you feel better. And it went with the land, you know. When I was in the tudra, for me, it was the hardest because it's flat and you don't see where you're going. And then a few years later, I decided to do the whole route. I went all the way to the Arctic Circle, so I did 1,800 kilometer, which took me three weeks. And what was great is I had all my experience of doing a few times the mm-hmm. 560K. And it was a whole different experience. But again, there's something you learn that you don't learn from an organized race that's fully supported. What do you like about competing, actually? Well, competing, like I said earlier, is I like to challenge myself. I like to train. Like, I train hard. For me, that's the thing, is I like coming back from a run or a ride or even in the winter from a ski, and I feel like I push myself. I explore what I can do, but I I enjoy it. That's the difference. Like, you come and ski with me, I'm not going to hammer and leave you behind. That's not what I do. Mm-hmm. But on my own, I so enjoy, like, feeling strong and feeling the speed. So even though I'm an endurance athlete, I do a lot of speed workout and hill repeats. And I really enjoy also the control race, meaning, like, you know, it's a 100K or it's an 80K or, like, the UTMB. I've done tons of those races, and I still do them. I still like that because you're around competitors. But you don't compete against them. You compete against yourself exactly and you, said, you mentioned something which is really nice about um, your attack strategy that you, you don't back off not even when you're in a leading position you push because you push for yourself yeah i basically that's the thing is i race with myself like i deal with myself throughout the race because the worst is to get emotional around what's going you oh i just got past oh i feel shitty i need to slow down oh she's gonna pass me it's like the only thing though is if a If someone, like let's say a girl passes me, I'll try to stick with her. Like I'm very competitive in the sense that it's like, oh, it's fine. Mm -hmm. But but basically I'm in my own bubble and Mm -hmm. um, I'm the opposite. Like I won't back off. I'll push and push and push, but I'll listen to my body too. And I always try to finish 
a race faster than I started. So it's all, we all go through ups and downs. But what I don't do though, is I don't start full out and then hit the wall. You know, I have my own strategy, but no, I don't get into the whole scene of like looking back or trying mm -hmm. to pace with someone. But what I really like to do is let's say I'm racing and there's like a guy or a girl, we're about the same pace. I don't talk, but I'll stick with that person as long as it's my own pace. I like to be quiet and I don't communicate much. I never have a crew when I race, even an 80K or 100K crew. I get to checkpoints, do my own thing and go back out. And... In my opinion, motivation is always very deep and personal. How, taking your experience, how do you use that in your coaching business? How do you tap into that? Well, first of all, I don't do a lot of coaching. It's mm -hmm. mostly because I don't have the time. But what I do mostly is I, you know, I, I offer camps. And, mm -hmm. you know, so it's more like a, like here in Chamonix, I offer the vertical training. It's mm -hmm. one hour a week, early morning that we do ups and downs and I coach that. What I always say to people is that when you feel like quitting, you've only reached about 50% of your potential. So people that train with me when I coach them, is I really push them. But what they're amazed is they're able to do it and they see, they see the result fairly quickly. The problem, for example, with trail running is the mass right now don't push themselves. Like they're not even athlete. There's nothing wrong with that. Mm -hmm. But they do a lot of volume, low intensity, and they slow down. You know, my background of athleticism, we work hard. You know, we work hard to be good athletes. And same thing when I race mountain bikes. It's like so many girls that we were like the same speed. So to really win or to really do well, you had to train so much harder. So whoever trained the hardest, but really took care of themselves too. The great thing is we don't really have limits because the limit is all in the brain. It's how you think. So you quit when you're fatigued. But that's just your brain telling you, oh, your muscles are starting to be tired, you have less muscle glycogen, so people back off. But the reality is you have such a big reserve. So I really push in my coaching that. And what people really like is they see result and they realize, oh my God, I'm so, I'm so much stronger mentally than I thought I was. But I don't go into the whole, like, you're amazing and you're awesome and I believe in you because that's not good. That's not, you know... For me, that can basically destroy a potential too, because you're constantly told that you're great. So it's like, I don't need to push more. Mm -hmm. And I think you need to feel that you're getting faster. Then that's when you get motivated. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh my God, I can do this faster. Usually it took me this. Now I do it four minutes uh, faster. And you know, there's a progression as being a recreational athlete or an elite athlete. What validates an athlete? Is it okay to be harder on yourself? Where's the balance? There, there are some people who are so, they're highly critical. They're, they feel like they're, they're never enough and they need to push. And is this good? Is it not good? The thing is, is there, there's different type of mindset. Mm -hmm. So there's one type of mindset that's very fixed. Mm -hmm. So that's going to be the type of athletes that they, they're never wrong. They always have. So if they don't win, they have an excuse. They always push themselves, but they always stay within their comfort zone. Mm -hmm. And then there's a type, the other type of athletes that have the mindset that they're very open-minded. So they're not influenced by their environment. The people that have the fixed mindset, it's more the athletes that have talent grew up being told they're amazing and they went to the best school and to the best club. And so they have more pressure, but they have a harder time dealing with pressure versus, versus like the open mindset. It's the athlete that 
digs deeper. So if they see failure as a chance to, oh, I didn't do well in that race, but it's because of X, Y, Z, so I'm going to work harder on that. Versus the fixed mindset is going to say more, oh, it's because it was cold. Oh, it's because my sh- I wore the wrong shoe. You know, they find excuses. Mm-hmm. And with athletes, we have to be really careful with that because it's very easy naturally to give excuses, mm-hmm. to come back from a race and explain why instead of looking at yourself in the mirror and say, what went wrong? Or I need to train more on this instead of giving a reason. I think that's a big difference. And one has an ego, one has less ego. And there's always going to be the people that it's all about winning, 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 winning. And then there's the type of athlete that has a mindset. I just want to like always do the best I can do on that day and train the best I can. And there's a lot of athletes that don't put the training in, but they want to see results in the race. So it's very complex. Mindset is very complex. You started your education in sports rehabilitation and performance training. Did you feel that you could not advance as an athlete without acquiring this knowledge? Well, no. And the reality is I didn't start with rehabilitation. I started with exercise physiology. And I think when I went into college, uh, I was not too sure what I wanted to do. So it was kind of parallel. I like sport, but I was always fascinated with the human body. So I said, I'll go into exercise physiology, went to a really good university. And after I did my degree, I realized, okay, that was basic. I want to learn more. So that's when I applied to med school and I went across the country on the West Coast and I started med school, but then I did a specialty in biomechanics and human Mm -hmm. performance to really understand better the body. I had no desire to be an MD. Mm-hmm. And uh, I didn't even know then that I would go and do a lot of specialty and be a consultant in, in uh, rehabilitation. It's only after. I'm really involved with sport orthopedic clinic and their rehabilitation of sports injury, but on the human performance side also. I mean, that's what the body is all about. Eh? The body is about recovering and performing, but mm-hmm. it's about having weaknesses also. It's parallel to my athleticism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it built gradually, one step next exactly. in front of the I other. didn't plan anything, <laughs> it just happened. You recently wrote, and Glenna Editions published your book, which uh, we have for now just in French. Trail, le clé pour performer sans se blesser. Trail, the keys to perform without injury. What was the motivation for writing this book? Well, they actually, Glenna called me. So the, uh, the uh, an editor from... Glenna, which is uh, one of the biggest publishing company in France, and they do a lot of mountain books, but they do books at every level. I got a call in basically in November 2018 to see if I was interested in writing a book because that was not on my that was not on my plan to write a book, and especially not trail running because there's so many other things I would have preferred writing. But then they proposed me. You know, they first they said we really want a book about injury prevention. I said. That's great, but if we're going to write a book about injury prevention, it needs to be very educational, but I need to go into every aspect of running because it's so much more than just getting injured. It's how we train, mm-hmm. how we run, the technique, uphill, downhill, you know, progression. Uh, I said yes to, to the contract, and then the book was just released this February, and I gave all my heart into it. It's a technical book. I wrote it in French. It's my second language, so that was very challenging. And it's hard to write a, a technical book. It's almost like putting a puzzle together without having the big picture. 
and I wanted to put a lot of information, but I, it's technical, but I wanted the general public to really understand it, mm-hmm. and I wanted to have a flow from chapter to chapter. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can read it from like page one to 167, and there's a flow, but you can also read just chapter at a time and still get uh, the info. I put a lot of diagram, a lot of photos with reference. It's very visual. I think that really helps. And I've put a ton of exercises mm-hmm. that are injury-specific, exercises that are reinforcement-specific, like strengthening specifically for trial running, and then a lot of performance dynamic mm-hmm. exercise also. Trail running is a growing discipline, and we have a lot of enthusiastic beginner runners without a sports background. They overtrain or mistrain and end up injured. In the first chapter of the book, you mentioned which are the most frequent types of injuries specific to trail running. There's quite a few, but you see that there's two main reasons why trail runners get injured. Is First is because they don't focus on technique and their skills to mm-hmm. trail running. So quick cadence, technique when you go uphill, downhill, and people think, oh, everybody can run, so they just go and run. They have like the poor technique. So that's really hard on the body. That's hard on the joint. I call it, there's very high mechanical stress. And then the other reason why trail runner get injured is, um, is because of musculoskeletal imbalances. We all have weaknesses and strength, but a high impact sport, that makes a huge difference. So these are the two reasons. It's not because trail running is hard on the body. It's not because running is hard on the body. I've been running for 40 years and, you know, the last 30 years I haven't had one injury. And I work, and that's, you know, that's a lot of concept I teach in the clinical setup and all the sport orthopedic specialists that works with runner, we always bring them back stronger than before the injury so they can eliminate. But we have to educate. So my book also is to educate the trail runner that why do you get injured? Why like 70% of the trail runners get injured and why it's always like, it's always the same injury, never goes away. But but that's the thing, they don't take care of themselves. And they run a lot, They they run... They do a lot of volume. It's part of the culture of trail running. They do a lot of volume at low intensity. So the impact on the joint, especially the knee and the hip, is way, way higher. And they have a very slow cadence. So the space between the front and the back leg is greater. And then they spend a lot of time Mm -hmm. absorbing the shock. So it's an inefficient way. Like you look at a Kenyan running a 42-kilometer you see how quickly the leg turnover is. We want the same thing for trail running, and that makes a massive difference. You mentioned in the book that it's really important in order to prevent injury and to perform, to listen to our body and to understand our biomechanics. How do we do that? Yeah, well, (laughs) that's why I wrote the book. (laughs) Yeah, and that's why when Glenelg offered me, it's like I'm going to go way beyond. And what's great about the body is you and I can go run and you can have a total different technique than me, but we can both be efficient. So one thing that's very important and I made it clear in the book is there's not one way of running we all have different biomechanics different posture but the basic skills are all the same it's like you know a skier if you want to learn how to ski or climb there's basics but then we all move differently mm-hmm. you know on a technical route a climber will will move differently than the other it's the same thing for running but the reality is you have to learn how to run and this is what I do in my camps, but I show people, I, I teach how to run efficiently and how to run to be faster and stronger, how to be efficient climbing and descending. And, and that's the way you reduce your risk of injury. And it's taking care of your body. So knowing your weaknesses and your strength and doing, not going to the gym and doing exercise, but doing like, you know, 
sports-specific strengthening exercise you can do at home after your runs and like increasing the strength in your lower leg. And a lot of people think we need proprioception with the foot, but that's false. It's more doing a lot of exercise barefoot, strengthening the muscle of the foot. Then your ankle won't give away. It's not the ankle that's an issue. It's your foot. You know, it's details like this that that's why I educate. That's why I have camps. That's why I teach live videos. That's why I do the Chamonix Mountain Running Festival is it's very educational. So I pass on that info. You also talk about pain. Should we make it our friend? Yeah, well, the problem, that's the thing, is pain is not real. Like whenever, it's a little bit like I was saying earlier, for me, it all depends on our threshold. Like I was saying earlier, I like to push myself. I, I, if I didn't push myself, probably after an hour and a half or two hours, I would start feeling fatigue. Fatigue because I've been running for an hour and a half. But if I push myself, maybe I can go two and a half, three hours before I start feeling fatigue. So the fatigue, first of all, it's not real. It's basically a perception of how we feel when we exercise. But we, cha we can change that perception because it's also, I, I call it the roommate that lives within our brain. Is that roommate tells us, Chloe, you're starting to be tired here. Why don't you slow down? You know, you feel your quad, you feel your calves. Yeah, maybe I feel them, but maybe too it's because I have a slow cadence and I'm pounding on the ground and my muscles are tired, but if my legs are quicker and if I train more often and better, So fatigue too, it's like sometimes for one person, fatigue is just fatigue for another person. It's like, oh my God, I'm injured. My calf really hurts. No, you're just fatigued. It's just like you're low in glycogen and that's a byproduct. There's more lactate. Uh, you know, it's like, so it's, it's really understanding the difference between like pushing yourself and not somebody who never pushes themselves. They feel a lot of fatigue. You think of someone that's overweight who start running you know, everything is hard for them. Mm -hmm. Their heart rate, the minute they start running, heart rate is high. Somebody who's fit, that's why you look at them sometimes and say, how can they run that fast for three hours? Is because they train hard. Mm -hmm. So their fatigue threshold is, is basically lower. They can push more before they feel fatigue. How would you define performance? I did an interview two days ago and I had the same question asked and it was specific to trail running. And what I answered was that Performance is how fast can you go for that distance? You know, it comes back. It comes down to that. If you think of a schema race, mountain bike race, um, trail running race, the reality is we all try to be fast for the distance. So the faster you can be, I always say to someone, it's not, you know you're progressing and you're performing if your time gets better for the same distance. It's not if you finish third or second or fourth because it depends on your competitor. It's great if you finish third. Sometimes I can win a race, but it's like everybody's so much slower. My And my time is not as good, but I won. But I can do another race, finish 10th, and my time is so much faster. Everybody's so much stronger. I push more. The way I define performance is basically when you know you push yourself and you commit, you're dedicated and you're driven to put the training in to progress and to adapt because we need to put the training in, back off, Depending how we feel, if you have an injury, we don't want to be injured, good recovery, and then we get to the next stage and stronger and stronger. So that's performance. Accomplishment is the opposite. Accomplishment is just like, I want to be able to run for two hours. That's an accomplishment. But I want to be able to do my marathon in that time. Uh, that's performance. And that's basically being stronger and faster for the distance. 
In the fourth chapter of your book, Getting in Shape, you dedicate a subchapter to the physiological changes for runners 40 plus and their performance expectations. Now, it seems to me that trail running and especially ultra running attract this age group. Is endurance an ability we are more susceptible of developing when we become more mature? Yeah, this is a great question that you're asking, and that's why I brought it in my book, is a lot of people think that the minute you're 40 and over, or in your 50s, is you cannot go faster, but you can build a lot of endurance. What I clarify in my book is first science-based, is we know that some people get that earlier than others, some people can be mid-30s, later late 30s or early 40s are a maximum VO2 max reduced. That's the first physiological changes that happen. So what that means, it means that, you know, how how fast can you go for, for how long can you go? So it's basically when your heart rate is above 90%, mm-hmm. above 90%. We don't really need that for endurance sport, but the reality is that what really matters is that how long you've been training and how well you've been training. That's going to delay basically aging. That's why Marco Olmo, the Italian, who at mm-hmm. 58 years old, he won the UTMB, and then at 59, he won it again. Is That's a good example that Marco has been training hard all his life. So his VO2 max is still very high. He can still run fast for the distance because mm-hmm. he has that fitness versus if somebody starts running at 42, They start running, and then a year later, it's like they run twice as fast, but the difference is they're building endurance. They didn't have fitness before. They don't understand the difference between building fitness and speed. So what they're doing is it's great. They're building endurance because they didn't have enough, but they're not going to build a lot of speed. Mm -hmm. But we can manipulate that. We can manipulate the physiology. So I always say people that are in late 30s, early 40s that start or they're just in their 40s training, I always say quality is the most important thing. Don't try to do a lot of volume because you need more recovery. The older we get, we need more recovery. So really condense your workout. Do more quality. So instead of focusing on like a really long three-hour run, uh, three days off, and a two-hour run, one day off and an hour run. I always say run at least four times a week. But don't do super long. Like do quality, do tempo change, pickups. You do your long run. Don't overdo it with the long run. Make sure you you keep on running the hills. When you walk, you walk fast. So what we want to do is we want to maintain strength and speed and build the volume besides that. It has a lot to do with your past. Almost all the athletes that have a really like 15, 20 years of training and racing, they can push until their 50s easily if they don't have an injury and they, they didn't get overtrained during their career. Yeah, and also this base that you're talking about also helps prevent injuries. It does, but again, what I want to say is it's very fragile, eh? I always say the body is fragile, training is very fragile. Even me, I can push two days and then I feel it for four or five days. And very, a lot of people cannot maintain their training for like a decade or two decades because they don't take care of themselves. Like we talked earlier, mm-hmm. they don't listen to the body. They get overtrained or injury after injury and then they have to stop. But if we have a perfect body that doesn't get overtrained and we really take care of it, Yeah, I mean, I'm one of them. I look at my age and I have a bunch of friends that are the same. I need more recovery. I do a lot of volume, but I don't do as much as before because I don't need to. You're not competing anymore. I'm competing, but I don't need to. I've got a good base. 
Okay. So I focus more on on quality workout. And you know, when you age, you learn, eh? And I always say, sometimes it's the insecurity of the athlete. We want to do more thinking that we're going to be fitter. But I've learned it's not more that gets me fitter. It's more the quality. And that's really important when you're 40 and over. Great. How about male versus female performance expectations? Do you find there's a difference in potential? No, not at all. Like I have a girlfriend that uh, last Olympics, she won a gold after and eight months before she, she had a baby. That's a good example because women were limited if, you know, pregnancy and hormonal changes. I look at me, you know, I really feel longevity. I look at my age and I look at my body and what I can do and it just doesn't match. And I think it has a lot to do with our attitude and it's very cultural. Mm-hmm. So certain countries, male are more pushed to train than female. Um, like in Kenya, we see more and more uh, women, but before it was only men. Um, North America, it's both. You know, it's men and women. Uh, certain area, it's you need to have money. Mm-hmm. Like in, to do track in North America, you really need to be in a, fam- in a family that has money and go to a really good university. So I think it has more to do with that. Talking about quality, there's a lot of recycled information on the internet articles recommending various trainings equipment maximalistic shoes minimalistic shoes which i find in your book among triggers to certain injuries how do we sift through this information know how to where to go for quality information Yeah, and you bring a good point because the reality is the third reason why so many trail runners get injured is with all the all the bad information on social media, in magazines. The reality is this is um, people writing about everything, but most of them are not expert. The downside is it's all copied information or it's all information to sell you equipment, to sell you shoes, Uh, to sell you a way of running. They want to sell you how to run forefoot, barefoot, midfoot. They don't have the expertise. So before we had less info and we didn't have social media. So you got the info from like specialists and books and physiotherapists and really good coach. And now every runner is turning into a coach. Like I have my level three coaching from Canada. It took me up to six years to get my level three coaching for sports specific. Mm -hmm. But now everybody, you know, right and left, it's like you see all these big websites and everybody does training. The main reason that's very, um, that can be um, confusing is there's so much info. So that's number one. There's only one right info or two. So there's too much info. So I always say to people, look where the info is coming from. Look at the credit of the individual. Is it just a journalist? If he's a journalist, does he specialize? If it's, and when you Google things, it doesn't mean that it comes on the first page that it's good. It's just that that's what people look at. A lot of SEO optimized. (laughs) Yeah, like me, a lot of what I teach, even my live videos, my fit live videos, you could not find that on Google, for example. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the information is, I always say to people, it's like stay away from, stay away from what athletes say to do. Stay away from like diets. Stay away from like actors and rock stars, what they do. And stay away from people that are sponsored from that brand. And ask people around you that really do it. Injury, don't look online. Go to a physical therapy clinic, you know? Mm-hmm. It's like, go through the right resources. Read a really good book. Don't read a book about this, this guy or this girl who did this thing and they're amazing and then take 
for assumption that the way they train, that's the way to train. No, find a book just for training. There's inspirational books, but there's technical books. And and like for the shoes, it's the, the shoe industry is the worst because first of all, there's not one company that can prove that their shoe makes a difference. I teach a lot of conferences on that. And the reality is shoes cannot make you faster, cannot make you perform, but they can injure you. And now we have the big shoe, which we call the maximalist, and then we have a minimalist average shoe that's more like what everybody wears that looks normal, and then we have the very minimalist shoe, like the five-finger shoe, for example, that would be minimalist. Like a track shoe, a spike, that's minimalist, okay? But the maximalist shoe, what happens is that they try to sell you a shoe that's going to control your pronation, gives you more cushioning, and then there's the drop. The drop is the difference of height between the heel and the toe, and they say the higher it is, the more control you have, and you know, it's, yeah, and more cushioning. But the reality is it really changed your mechanics. So going from maximalist to minimalist or minimalist to maximalist, that's the worst. And it can really affect the kinetic chain. So for example, to not to name any, any brand, the maximalist shoe are prone to make you a heel striker just because of the cut. And a heel striker makes you overstride, so it slows down your cadence. I see it in elite and I see it in general public. But that brings on a lot of stress to the knee joint and to the hamstring, lower back, and to the calf. So a lot of injury we see is all the pathology at the knee versus people that are forefoot running, runners, that is more prone also to a maximalist shoe. They'll have a tendency like to point their toes before landing, and that's probably heel and forefoot, it's the best way to get injured. And forefoot, it's really hard on your calves mm -hmm. and really work hard on your hamstring, on your Achilles tendon. So we see a lot of plantar fasciitis, Achilles tendinopathy, calves ripped apart. So the reality is I hear it all around me. Like I have friends calling, everybody's saying this and that, but then they go to the shoe store and they say, well, buy the shoe because it's, because it's going to protect you and more, it's going to, it's, you're going to absorb more of the shock and your pain in your calf is going to go away. So I, I would have to talk an hour on that for it makes sense. But the reality is the shoe doesn't make the runner. And we want to pick, I always say it's good to stay average. Like for, for like six drop is enough. Maximalis is too much. Uh, we want to feel the ground. Running is natural. And we want a shoe, a light shoe, a heavy shoe. It can slow you down. It drains lower leg um, energy. The, a heavy shoe makes you consume more oxygen. So a lighter shoe is very important. There's a lot of component. We don't need to go to extreme techniques. And that's why a lot of companies that sell maximalist shoe now are starting to do minimalist because uh, we see it uh, in the orthopedic world. All the rates of injury are very high with a maximalist or super minimalist shoe. We have the science to back up that the shoe are injuring runners versus healing. You've uh, participated in one of your workshops and also at the Chamonix Mountain Running Festival last year, which uh, we will talk about a little bit later. And I remember how much accent you put on technique and on descent and doing barefoot exercises and properly stepping on your first two toes. Will this type of uh, six-drop shoe will allow us to have more control over the ground we're at? 
Well, the reality is this, is first of all, a big shoe. Mm -hmm. A big shoe is going to be narrow and you're going to be really high off the ground. So you're going to be, you're not going to feel the ground as much and you're more prone to rolling your ankle. Mm -hmm. A shoe, when the heel is, is closer to the ground, you feel more, your toes will spread more in your shoe. You're going to use more your forefoot. You're going to use more all the muscles in your feet. You're going to use more the recoil energy of your plantar fascia, of your Achilles tendon, and they get to act like a spring. It's like a climbing rope. You know when you fall off a mm-hmm. brand new climbing rope, there's a rebound effect? When you run with a lighter shoe, you use that recoil energy. A heavy shoe, you spend a lot of time on the ground. There's three things that's important for the trail. is You need a good technique, like you said, like running downhill. I always say to people to build confidence. Spread your legs a little bit wider, shorter steps, pick up the speed. But with a maximalist shoe, you know, you're kind of like on your toes because your heel is higher. So you're more prone to slowing down and sitting back. Mm -hmm. When you go uphill, same thing. I always say to people, it's like riding a bike. It's like the minute you feel you're tired and you want to walk, really like increase your cadence. So legs, legs touch the ground more often. But run slow. You're going to build strength. When you get too tired, then start walking. And again, if you're in a minimalist shoe, you're going to use more the muscle in the posterior chain, more your glutes and your hamstring and your calves. And by working with your technique and having a shoe that lets you, because if the shoe is too big or too minimal, Mm -hmm. you won't be able to have your own natural biomechanics. That's Mm -hmm. a downside. Mm -hmm. And when I say to do, like when you took the festival... I brought you guys to the track and we did a bunch of exercise barefoot is to be a really good trail runner. We need really a strong foot Mm -hmm. and a big shoe doesn't do that. So that's why all the exercise dynamic and quick moving with an average, you know, light shoe, but between four and six drops and less than 250 gram, for example, then you're going to be able to take the strength of your foot and to really anticipate where to put your foot And when you step on the rock, instead of rolling your ankle, the muscles are going to engage. Like, it's more dynamic. It's more, it would be like swimming with, you know, with, um, with big claws. No, it's the same thing. It's, it's just a culture right now, but it's a culture that was created by the shoe industry to make money. Tell me about the Chamonix Mountain Running Festival. Will we have an edition this year in this uh, contest? Yeah, and I'm really excited. It's going to be, I've been working on that the last month, but uh, yeah, it's our third edition, but the big event I've been canceled in Chamonix. Mine is the weekend before the UTMB, so the third week of August. I've decided not to cancel it and to do a virtual edition, which I'm super excited. It's probably going to go live at the end of this week, um, but I have 10 really good friends and most of them are elite runners, trail mm-hmm. runners from around the world. So the great things is if it would be like on site in Chamonix uh, Mountain Running Festival this year, they, they would not be part of it. But because it's virtual, they'll be part of it. I have some experts, like I have a girlfriend who has a PhD in sleep deprivation for endurance athlete. And I have a, a client who has a PhD and she's a, she has a physical therapy clinic in the States, in the USA, mm-hmm. uh, for elite runners. So she'll do a talk. But I have a lot, of, a lot of really good runners. And what we're doing this year is we're sharing our experiences. 
So what we'll do is usually, like I said earlier, my, my festival is really to give skills, to inspire, but to give skills. We're not there just to play and to have fun. <laughs> um, so all the presentation are going to be through Zoom. They're going to be one hour, so a presentation of about 30, 40 minutes, and then open to question and answers. And I'm going to take maximum 30 people per video so then it's very intimate so mm -hmm. there's a lot of question time for question and each of us are going to talk about specific experience what we learn from it and what basically the trail runner can learn from us so it's going to be really cool it's going to be very personal which is the first time um the first time i will i will be doing this yeah with really great names believe me i'm, I'm curious what future projects do you have i know you're also involved in research My work is always evolving, eh? Like right now, I'm I'm teaching at Padua University, which is in Italy, and it's uh, it's it's very interesting, intriguing. I'm I love it because it's the top university for my field. We spend a lot of time in research um, for mechanics and fascia and um, neuroplasticity. So basically, um, how the brain by using the brain, you can relearn how to move and be more performant depending how you move. So that's why somebody, for example, I've worked with this lady who, um, remember the bombing at Boston? She lost part of her part of her leg. She was always a runner with specific training, specific rehabilitation, rewiring of your brain. When I say rewiring is learning how to use your body again to run. Rewriting the, the neural connections. Yeah, and she's faster than before even though uh, she has a prosthesis, it's, you know, there's no advantage. And same thing, somebody who has a, like we were talking earlier, somebody can have a bad mechanics, but just working on the mechanics and really good training, um, you know, changing, training the body differently, you can become, uh, you can become more performance. So from an injury, All my work has been around, we can come back stronger than before, and I've seen it. Mm -hmm. yeah, you can have less muscle um, and still be, you can lose a finger and be stronger climber than before, as we've seen. So that has a lot to do with my work. And uh, I have a new book that I started writing, The Brain and mm -hmm. Mental Resilience for Endurance Athlete. So continuing with everything else, but these are kind of like uh, my two new projects. Great, I look forward to reading your book. <laughs> Thank you very much, Chloe, for your time. Thank you, Anka. Thanks for listening to Transylvania Mountain Festival podcast with Anka Berlo. If you want to know more about the event, check out www.transylvaniamountainfestival.ro where you can also enter this year's mountain film and mountain photography competition. Also, if you like our show, please leave us a review on iTunes and give us a rating. It really helps. <laughs>